0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down, is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now, let's journey into this story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Hey, my friends, hope you're all doing well. If you guys listened to my conversation with the incredible Johan Hari with his book, stolen focus Then you would have heard during our conversation that we talked about mind-wandering. Now mind-wandering is a pretty cool process in which the mind tends to drift off into different and a variety of of thoughts. And I personally mind-wander quite a bit. You can mind-wander in the shower, you can mind-wander pretty much anywhere you like, and it is actually an important process of focus. And today I had the incredible pleasure and honor of introducing you to someone who has written the first ever now very popular book on mind wandering. And that is the name of the book, Mind Wandering by Moshe Barr. Now our brains are noisy. Certain regions are always grinding away at involuntary activities like daydreaming. Many of you will be familiar with that. Worrying about the future and self chatter. Taking up to 47% of our waking time. This is what Moshe describes as mind wandering. And while it can target your attention away from the present and contribute to anxiety, cognitive neuroscientists, my guest today, Moshe Barr, reveals that there is an is there is a method behind this apparent madness. Mind wandering is the first popular book to explore the multifaceted phenomenon of our wandering minds and the cutting edge new research behind it Moshe combines his decades of research to explain the benefits and the possible cost of mind wandering within the broader context of psychology, neuroscience, psychiatry and philosophy providing us with practical knowledge that can help you Moshe Bar is the former director of Cognitive Neuroscience Lab at Harvard Medical School and the Massachusetts General Hospital, and internationally renowned cognitive neuroscientist too. He has a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. For his outstanding research and academic achievements, he has received many awards and honors, including the prestigious 21st Century Science Initiative Award from the McDonald's Foundation and the Hebb Award from the International Neural Network Society, among many, many others. And like I mentioned, his very first book, which I think is honestly incredible, when you open it up and you start reading it, it really hooks you right in. I kid you not. Uh, trust me when I say the story that he opens up with, it is so, uh, <laughs> you just have to read it to, to believe it. But mind-wandering can improve your mood and boost your creativity. If you believe me, uh, you're going to learn why and how during this conversation. I think it's very, very fascinating. And if you did enjoy what uh, Johan Hari had to say about my wandering, then you're definitely going to enjoy this from an actual neuroscientist who looks deep into the research and the science behind it. Not that Johan didn't do it, but uh, I think it's extra uh, informative getting it from Moshe Bar as well. So if you do get something from this, and I highly, highly think that you will, then please share it around to all your friends and family. Don't forget to leave a rating and review over on podcast. Podcasts. So you can do it now on uh, Spotify, I believe, which is pretty cool too. So if you want to do that, that'd be extremely helpful. Just boost us up in the charts even more, which is amazing. And I always love hearing people and their feedback uh, on the show and how I can improve Uh, But also don't forget that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-order. It is coming. It's already May, my goodness. Uh, It's just around the corner. So if you want to pre-order, you can go and do that right now links will be in the show notes below also don't forget to get mind wandering too link for that will be in the show notes below all right my friend it is time to journey into this story box or we'll mind wander around in the story box today as we listen to the incredible wisdom the advice and the stories of none other than dr moshe bar
1: thank you very much for having me
0: it's an honor to have you here sir i know it is incredibly late, and for my audience he's He stayed up until 11 p.m. for us, (laughs) so everyone can be incredibly more and more grateful for you, my friend. I just wanted to say thank you for that. Uh, Very much looking forward to diving further into your backstory, why you do what you do and and talking about this very interesting topic of, of mind wandering. Before we do that, my very first question for you is a question I love starting off with all my guests. It is, what does success look like for you?
1: Hmm. Well, it's definitely domain specific. I don't want to sound boring, right? But there's success. But I'm assuming you're talking about science. So, um, yeah, I'm afraid I don't have a short answer. I have a long answer. But uh, go for it. Uh, uh, good data is a kind of local success. You know, if you have a hypothesis and you find that your hypothesis is supported by the data after a complicated process of executing an experiment, or even better, leads you to uh, new territories which you did not expect uh, getting into the experiment. Uh, This is well, scientific happiness, maybe not success, but happiness. Uh, But overall, uh, now, as I'm sure we'll discuss further into our uh, conversation, uh, now that I realize links to mood and we do uh, play with this or study this both in the lab and also in a startup company where we try to alleviate symptoms of depression, the ability to help individuals uh, it, you know, by now it sounds a cliche but when I feel it individually where we already are able to modify things for people on an individual and a daily basis it's a huge privilege so um, this privilege for now is a success for me if, if, if we indeed succeed I like
0: that. And I love your research on mood and and trying to heal people of depression because that is a prevalent thing in today's society, and it often comes down to how a person feels. They often feel numb to to life almost, and the things that they uh, they do well, they did do that they no longer enjoy doing anymore. And I know that I've I've been through that uh, in, in the past of my life. But I wanted to ask you, where does or in the brain more specifically? where does mood or what part of the brain initiates the mood? And is it more or less when it comes down to depression, what actually happens to the brain in terms of our mood, if that question made sense?
1: It did make sense, but there is some terminology issues that uh, we need to establish. And one, one of them is that actually it's more than a conceptual understanding of how the brain works. Uh, the idea that there is a certain region for doing something is uh, kind of obsolete or uh, somewhat outdated. And we do think about you know, global networks and, and things that uh, work in orchestration. And for mood specifically, you can look at different levels. You can look at molecular levels. You can think about uh, what we call neurotransmitters. And we, everybody is familiar with serotonin or dopamine, right? So these are uh, neurotransmitters directly involved in our regu- in the regulation of our mood. So, uh, so a neurotransmitter is everywhere in the brain, right? So it's more like a matter of concentrations and and uh, and uh, transmission and reception. There are some regions that are in the brain that are more um, associated with mood than others. And we have to realize in order to examine this, or to think for a second, what is mood made of? Because mood is, for example, involved in good feeling, and good feeling is associated with reward. So then you can think about the entire reward system in the brain, both the molecules and the areas and the connections and the activities. So it's more than both. There's at least four of them. And that's just for the the, the uh, better or worse mood. But mood, mood is also linked with the way we think, as I uh, elaborate in the book. So if you think associatively and broadly or narrowly and in a, in a more ruminative way, uh, is determined by levels of inhibition, as we call it. So there we know that the prefrontal cortex, the, the uh, area or the region behind your forehead, <clears throat> the CEO of the brain, so to speak, Sends down inhibition to the medial temporal lobe, so we know there is uh, large-scale and long-distance regions um, coordinated in in achieving, you know, the our state, the, the specific state we're in. So it's really a uh, um, it takes a village. <laughs> How
0: about for decision making and ultimately making a choice, does that come down to ultimately our mood and the kind of chemicals that go on in our brains?
1: Okay so it it's it's more the other way around that is our mood would affect the way we make our decisions. Okay so uh the same decision or the same you'll make different decisions in the same situation if your mood is different, right? So even what you described before the the what we call anhedonia that people stop feeling the pleasure for the same activities that, that they have used to in the past so, if if you're in a state of anhedonia and I offer you to go out for a run with me or to come even to the beach or something that's highly uh, attractive, still uh, you'll be reluctant. So uh, your decision to take path A or path B really depends on your state and mood is is a major state and a, more, a major you know kite runner of our uh, all, the, all all our decisions. <clears throat>
0: You talk about in the introduction of your book, which I found was very highly addictive. (laughs) I encourage people to open up the book. It will draw you straight in. You'll soon see why. But you talk about the states of mind. Are you able to explain what you mean by the kind of states of mind? What are they?
1: Yeah. So um, it's it's kind of a framework we established over the years. And it's not only us. It's kind of a synthesis of a work of... uh, for the, from the last couple of uh, decades. And the idea, again, is is an issue that is almost like, just like mood, state of mind, is almost like a household concept, but it's not a well-defined concept. And I would like to refine the way people look at what is their state of mind. Because as we just uh, said in the answer to the previous question, our state affects everything about our being, or, mo- or most of the things about our being. So our productivity, our happiness, our uh, success, Well, happiness is a big word, but I mean the local uh, mood and and, and feelings. Um, So we found over the years there's a big or like pillars of of our cognition, and I'll lay them out in a second, tied together. So the way we perceive our world, okay, the way we attend our world physically, if we see the forest or if we see the trees, I think you and your listeners can definitely relate to the fact that at some point, you know, in some situation, we look at the big picture and some other situations we look at the details, right? We are different people and at different times. And I'll get back to this. But so the way we examine the world, the way we think, if we think broadly or narrowly, uh, our our mood, positive or negative, even our openness to experience, how much we'd like to explore versus how much we'd like to exploit familiar things. All these aspects of our mental being are tied together. Uh, in what we call, in, in the construct we call state of mind. And the, the interesting thing is that it keeps on moving. So it's important that we, re, we remember that we are dynamic creatures. And I think to some extent, this this is trivial, but to another extent, this is also not so intuitive for most of us. So take creativity, for example, which is uh, linked to how broadly associative you are, as I, as I mentioned before, so you think about somebody as creative or not creative. We think about yourself as creative or not creative. But it's good to know that we are actually, creati- our level of creativity is not destined. And in different situations, we can be more creative or less creative. And I do mention in the, in the book a few uh, situational elements that can increase or decrease our ability to be creative. So all these things are tied together in a concept we call state of mind. And we, and they move, you know, during the day, depending on context, depending on many other things.
0: Let me get back to you about the creativity part, because I did want to touch on that uh, later on in, in the conversation, but I wanted to sort of touch on something that you mentioned there, which fascinated me in regards to happiness. Is happiness a real thing or is it just a term that we have created regarding our feelings and, and emotions?
1: Yeah, this this is a concept that actually I'm trying to shy away from yep. in my research, not in my, not in my life. Uh, because I do think it means, and I don't want to offend anybody, but I do think it means different things to different people. We we know it's about feeling good, but then you start thinking about feeling content, feeling satisfied. Is it continuous? Is it the average? Uh, is it inside or is it uh, depending on context? So I think with your permission, I want to really get into Specifically defining happiness, but good mood is good enough for me. You know, just being uh, in good mood for as long as possible—that that's happy enough for me. And whatever floats your boat. I mean, if, if you can be really happy if your team wins, and you can be really happy seeing your kids grow up. Uh, so you see, there are different uh, timescales. So uh, happiness properly, there is research, and I give you no. Know, there's a lot of respect for uh, those pioneers that uh, look into it. And I think the number one researcher of happiness in the world. Um, I'm privileged enough to have him sign, like you know, he's endorsing the book there on the cover, Daniel Gilbert. So the lead, a leader and, and and doing you know some of the most um, cutting edge work and, and rigorous work on, on, in a field that seems so amorphous. So um, there is research definitely in happiness, and um, it's funny. Just over my screen here, there's like. 10 books, but with happiness under title, I can, uh, I can show it to you, maybe. <laughs> Oops. Um, <There> is thing. <laughs> right, right next to uh, depression. So there's a big column of happiness books and a big column of depression books. Maybe it's like I remember when I was living in the US, I would go to CVS you know, one of the pharmacy stores. And you <clears throat> standing line for the cashier and behind the cashier there's a giant wall half of the wall is cigarettes and half of the other wall oh, and the other half of the wall is all kind of chewing gums and means to stop smoking so it's like you know the, the <laughs> so I, I feel it's the same here the depression next to happiness but um yeah i mean uh, i don't think i can tell much to people about happiness that they haven't uh, thought about themselves in the sense that it's very personal and it means different things and there's no magic bullet and uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it's a very broad topic of conversation. A lot of people have tried to explain it as best they possibly can. And I think we could spend forever talking about and going down a a massive rabbit hole, because like you mentioned, there's countless books out there that you can, and I was listening to a podcast even this morning while on my run, uh, another, a doctor actually has written another book on happiness, like the keys to achieving happiness. And he was talking about core happiness. Like you got to have three things in order to be quote happy or, or achieve that, that sense of mood, I guess, that, and that resembles, I guess, a sense of happiness, um, meaning, purpose, and and other things all, all intertwining into one thing, which I found is a curious thing. But I guess more aligned with your research, I wanted to ask you, uh, how can mind-wandering make somebody or enhance their mood in a positive way? And can it do right. the complete opposite? Like, can it make it negative too?
1: Right, exactly. So you're touching on an important point here, and I do, if you don't mind, just uh, the tail of uh, the answer to the previous question. So what you mentioned about this book, you read it. I haven't read it yet, but, uh, you know, Victor Frankl with the man's search for meaning really talks about this whole idea of uh, purpose and meaning. And so, so I definitely think there's there, uh, things are there, but um, I do like to point out that when I was at Harvard, the number one by far, Uh, course in popularity was a course with happiness in its topic and its subject. And the same at Yale. So it attracts us. And uh, we're creatures that are, you know, really seeking happiness and and kind of at a loss. What should we do? What should we do to be happy? Am I doing the right thing? But we all uh, want to be happy. And there's something uh, uh, both uh, sad and uh, encouraging about the fact that we're generally not happy enough no matter what so uh, and of course anyway um so mind wandering and it's already in your, ended in your question uh, the idea is that there are um, different types of mind wandering and you already mentioned or asked whether mind wandering can make you feel good but also can make you feel bad so we need to remember that mind wandering is <clears throat> a collection first of all it's a collection of processes that um, that are involved but also there are different types of mind wandering. So you might be mind wandering about a future vacation, kind of running what we call mental simulations of possible locations and how would it feel to vacation there, including even rich details. And you may be ruminating on a bad comment you made last night over dinner. So both cases, these are mind wanderings, but one of them is narrow in scope and it leads you nowhere. And at the end of the day, it actually uh, torments you. Okay, And when people ruminate for extended period, when it becomes chronic, then it really can develop into pathology or a clinical situation that, that could be something like depression or anxiety. Uh, but the opposite, the broad mind wandering, where you think more associatively and you jump from uh, one thought to another, and I, I would like to elaborate on this in a second, more broadly and more remotely, the result is creative thinking. And our research and also uh, research done by others shows a close link between how broadly you think and how positive your mood is. And this is exactly what I what we're in what I uh, mentioned in the introduction, when we try to approach mood and mood disorder, that um, maybe we can change people uh, or, or people can change the way they wonder, the way they think, uh, to a way that's more conducive of, of a better mood, and if if you don't mind, I do want to elaborate on this uh, jumping and this and, and kind of mental distances. So you can think about everything that you know, everything that you learned, everything that you experienced, all the knowledge you have is connected. It's all connected. It's just a matter of uh, degrees of separation, but it's all connected and it's connected in a, in a giant semantic network. Okay, so even if Paris and uh, an ant, don't the animal don't don't sound uh, re, uh, don't sound related. You know, we'll make four or five steps and we'll be able to connect in your personal network. So when we think and when we wonder, it's akin to uh, walking on this network from one node, let's say Paris, to another node, okay, let's say uh, 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 patisserie, right? So there's like connection. Uh, there are also so there are short connections and long connections. So every time we think about thinking and the breadth of thinking and whether it's narrow and whether it's broad, one can imagine this network and think about long versus small steps and uh, expansive versus circular uh, uh, steps, etc. What are the neurons
0: in our brain doing when our mind is wandering, and does it change depending on? the kind of things that we are wondering about?
1: Uh, So there's a a massive network that we discovered. We as as a community, it's not all about my research. So it's a massive network that we call the default mode network. And this is the network of regions that uh, apparently, no, It turned out, and this was a big revelation about 20 years ago, that is very, very active, vigorously active, when we're not busy trying to achieve a certain goal. So when you're not interviewing guests or not reading an engaging book or not busy driving really fast and and really need all your senses to be in the moment, then the rest of your brain or or the available uh, parts of the brain and it's specifically this network, just grind away. We used to think naively that when we're not doing anything, the brain kind of rests. But it turned out to to be extremely active when we're uh, supposedly resting. So it means that really, by default, we are active. By default, we wander. And indeed, uh, it turned out that almost half of our waking hours, we wander. You think about it, I, I, I can't get used to this fact that half of your waking hours, your mind is not where your body is. It's it's kind of insane.
0: How about when we sleep? Is our mind still wandering or is it finally resting?
1: Yeah, well, you can call it resting, except REM, you know, the, the stage where we dream and our yeah. eyes move and, uh, and we're busy with uh, complicated scenarios. Um, otherwise, yeah, mind wandering is... Really um, exclusive for waking hours, unless you count dreaming as as mind wandering. Yeah,
0: I think the big question is that people are probably wondering right now: is why in the world do we do it? <laughs> What's the whole point yeah. of it?
1: Yeah. So, as someone who is a neuroscientist, I do believe in uh, in nature and in, in its infinite, in the infinite wisdom of evolution, and the idea that. If you stumble as a scientist, if you stumble upon a process, activity that the brain specifically in my case uh, of research does, and it's expensive in terms of time, in terms of energy, metabolic energy it requires, then there's got to be a reason. It's not, it can't be a fluke that, oh, oh, you know, we spend 30% of uh, the brain's energy doing just uh uh, simulations about, uh, about <clears throat> vacations. And th- this logic kind of guided the quest of us as a community to, to kind of try to understand what is this default activity do? What is this mind wandering include? We all can relate to Oh, yes, I wonder all the time, I get a lot of responses after all these interviews, and, and, and for people who read the book uh, already, that they all connect, and I think almost everybody thinks that they're unique in how much they and they're almost embarrassed to admit how much they wander. And it turns out we're all in this together and we're all uh wandering away uh pretty extensively. So um so yeah, that that started the quest to understand what's the content. So you mentioned decision making before, so let's just take decision making. When you are in some junction for a decision, and not talk, talking about <clears throat> big decisions, you know, getting married or not, buying a house or not. Your day is composed of hundreds or thousands of these little decisions, right? I mean, should I shower now or after I do the dishes? Should I take chocolate cake or cheesecake? Every little thing is a junction, even if it doesn't sound critical. And I do think that most of these junctions are not that critical, but we are facing them. So the process that we go through when we have to decide A versus B, your mind runs a quick or long, or depending on the decision, simulation of the possible outcomes. If I go with A, how are things going to unfold? And... Uh, if I go with B, how are things are going to unfold? And the way we know to do this is based on our experience. We already have experienced vacations on a on a remote uh, location by the beach, so this will be another location, but it's similar in that it's on the beach, there are similar temperatures. I can lean on my experiences, my memory, to project to the future and try to evaluate to the best of my uh, ability what will be the outcome if I go with A and or with b right and then in this moment you have two different outcomes and you said this is the one with the more desirable um elements and i go with b because this is what i want so if do do you want to eat now uh, jam or do you want to eat now sardines really depend on your state and in both you know both might be good option for your different times of the day but whatever you want to do now depends on you running a little simulation. How would I feel if I eat this or if I eat that?
0: What got you interested in, in studying more about, I guess, my wondering as a specific topic?
1: Well, I think many of us in the community that started studying this was um, both... Beca- well, I'll, I'll start backward. So... Uh, <clears throat> In the early days of my research, when I started my uh, graduate school in 94, uh, I was interested in how we recognize visual objects. Mm -hmm. How do you recognize a chair? How do you recognize a TV? How do you recognize a glass? And this is and I teach this now and not much has changed in those 30 years or so uh, in our understanding of exactly how an object is represented. But I've drifted, I'm a drifter, so I've, I've drifted since, and with the realization that we don't really see objects in our world in isolation. So when you bring subjects to the lab in a, for an experiment on object mission, you show them on the screen one object at a time. Okay, it's a stove, uh, it's a blender, it's a beach umbrella, right? And we examine how people are recognizing it. But in reality, you have a lot of arrangements, a lot of uh, uh, things, the collections of objects that objects never appear in isolation in our reality. So they are surrounded with other objects. And what's interesting is that they are surrounded with typical objects, with objects that are typically appear together. So a stove, as I mentioned before, usually would appear in the same context as a sink and a refrigerator and maybe a little table, right? So the brain connects these things that statistically, we call it statistical regularities, that statistically tend to appear together often, right? So when you think about a stove, you would also think about a refrigerator in some part of your brain, preparing you to what's likely to also be present in the same. So you won't be activating the representation of a samurai sword when you see a stove because what, what are the chances of seeing a samurai stored in a kitchen, right? So you kind of activate probabilistically things that are likely to appear in that context, depending uh on your experience and what you've stored in memory. So then then the realization that we we play with associations, we rely on associations, both for encoding memories and for retrieving memories, but also for using these associations as predictions. You hear the sound of a train, you know, to predict that the train will be coming soon, the same with a a lightning and uh, the thunder. Um, We learn these associations and we exploit them to increase the certainty uh, of, of our environment. We do strive on minimizing uncertainty to save ourselves in some modes in other modes we explore and we would do do want to take chances and risks just to learn and experience new things. But by and large, we're organisms that try to minimize uncertainty. And we do this by trying to foresee what's around the corner. And we do this based on um, our memories. So when we start looking at how it happens in the brain, and where we realize uh, that it really overlaps with the default network and with mind wandering, and we realize that a lot of the processes that take place during mind wandering and and in the default mode network is retrieving these associations, connecting them. So even the mental simulation I described before, you know, uh, eating this versus eating that relies on connecting, uh, you know, how does my body feel after I eat chocolate, right? So that's there's an association that can help you afterwards um, calculate, evaluate whether you would like to have chocolate or not.
0: I think it's fascinating research and I'm so glad that you actually undertook it and have created this book for everyone and you simplified it quite a bit in layman's terms for non-scientific individuals like myself to understand it, so I appreciate that. Um, Thanks. (laughs) uh, I wanted to ask you about how does it increase our ability to focus? My friend Johan Hari wrote Stolen Focus and he does talk about mind-wandering in the book, which kind of surprised me a little bit because it kind of feels like you're not really focusing, but it kind of does feel like you're focusing even more. It's a bit of a strange phenomenon, I think. Um, but maybe you can help explain why mind-wandering can increase our ability to focus and understand things in the world.
1: Yeah, well, I'm not sure I completely. This is a strong uh, assertion and I, I'm the last person to um, serve as a model for a focused mind. So I don't think that it's something that that I can. Uh, so my, you know, if more mindfulness meditation, I would say that mind wandering proper uh, is something that helps you focus in the sense that in different, and I'm and I'm far from being an expert in meditation, but. From the little I've, I've glimpsed and, 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 and practice, you realize that a lot of what you do is increasing your ability to focus and attend. And much of what happens, I mean, think about the workspace that's your brain. A lot of you, it's always filled with thoughts and actions. Some of them are relevant, some of them are just uh, um, like a monkey going crazy in your mind and, and just chattering without, without, um, without purpose. So, being able to control to harness this process of thinking, to be more uh, oriented, more uh, conscious, and mindful of your own thoughts, can help you focus. By the fact that you can reducing the noise and increasing the signal, so to speak. Uh, I don't think if you're about to do something that requires a lot of focus, uh, sitting down and mind-wondering is definitely going to help you. I think that uh, it's, it's, it's relative and uh, it, it depends on many things. So I wouldn't say mind wandering is a method for focusing, but it's a method for actually is a way of using your Unfocused mind to generate creative ideas and to generate better mood as a, as a positive uh, side product. How can By we product,
0: yeah. how can we better? What things can we do? I guess to better control the things that we do tend to wonder about. And I think you also talk about in one of the chapters the lost lost ability of novelty and why novelty is is crucial. Are you able to expand on that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, so it's a curious thing, because on the one hand, we fear novelty. And I'm sure that if you change the format of your podcast, your listeners would initially would object and will have a lot of things to say until they get used to it. So we are really averse to changes. But at the same time, we are attracted. We are suckers for novelty since we're one month old okay so this is actually being exploited by scientists to study babies that are pre-verbal that that cannot speak yet but we still want to understand can they recognize objects for example so we play with new versus old just to to gain knowledge by the the way with their gaze so we as creatures are attracted to novelty period even you know like it or not that this is what we do And the main reason for this is obviously learning. I mean, curiosity and learning are all means to get information to suck information from our world and put it in our memory. And if you ask why the answer is that so you can predict and minimize uncertainty in more and more and more situations, something new something novel is something you did not expect. So your system freaks out so to speak it's like oh my god i didn't i didn't expect this let me augment my existing memory with new information that will allow me then to um generate predictions also in in these situations which i wasn't able just uh, a second ago so we're suckers uh, for for novelty really because uh it teaches us something and it, it in, in, in you know, in theory can save our life uh, next time when we encounter the same situation. And even advertisers have explored this long time ago. So, I mean, the word new on every toothpaste, on every candy, <clears throat> we know that we actually do not get used to it. Every time we see new, we see novel, we are attracted.
0: I think you're right. In one hand, I understand that we do fear novelty because I know for me, like I've always got to feel like I've, I've – gotta be doing something like I can't not be doing something. And I think you, you open it up. You are talking about how our brains are always noisy with things happening in, in, in around us that we kind of lose the ability to be quiet and still, and to just focus on, I guess, some other more important things, which help build our creativity even more. I guess the thing that I wanted to ask you is: is there's so much, so it's so easy to, to to mind wander about negative things. What are some practical strategies that you've found in your research to stop that from happening, or is it a good thing to have that happen occasionally? Or because we seem to be doing it all the time, like yeah. it's just nonstop. <laughs> so how do we, how can we fix that?
1: So, yeah. So part of the thing I wanted to accomplish with the book is to help people distinguish between different types of mind wandering and just the ability to recognize what they're wondering about. What is it that occupies their mind? And in some cases, when you feel like you're in a good creative streak and thinking about productive and, and, and original things then I really recommend that people stay in bed or stay and know where they are and continue and not feel guilty about their wondering because it really serves an important function of making us a creative race. Uh, but in other cases where mind seems to be destructive, destructive like in rumination, uh, interesting thing is if, you, if you, even if you ruminate on a positive thing very quickly, it becomes a negative thing in some mysterious way. So we kind of, uh, manage to find the negative angles of, of, of even a positive uh, uh, event if we are in a ruminative uh, mood and type of thinking. So recognizing what type of mind wandering uh, you're engaged in can help you uh, first decide if you want to continue doing this or move on to something uh, something else. Um, so but affecting the the content of mind wandering, Um, there are some methods I mentioned in the book but our ability is very uh, is is limited people have to remember to to keep in mind that mind wandering uh, has a mind of its own so to speak Uh, we can't tell our mind to start wander we can't tell it what to wander about and we cannot tell it when to stop wandering it's all spontaneous it can be uh, triggered by a cue from the outside or from the inside some thought that occurred to you and you just go off in a tangent and kind of you go off wandering and kind of disconnected from the situation that you're in. Uh, I do play with tricks myself of kind of trying to summon, <laughs> it sounds uh, mystical, but to summon some topics into my upcoming uh, uh, pine watering by occupying my my mind with things that I would like to wonder about I would like to incubate as we call and create and be creative about it could be a problem that bothers me at work. So if I'm just stepping out of the door to go for a run uh, and I just finished uh, answering some bureaucratic emails or some annoying uh, uh, responses, then I don't want to go and grind on this when I run. So if I if I if I read a page of a book I like or, th- or bring back a problem that occupied me and I would like to solve, I just reading about it. Increases the likelihood that it will come up in my in my wandering mind, but it doesn't guarantee anything.
0: You thought you opened like I was mentioning before. You opened the book in a particular way, which mm-hmm. I found fascinating. You were talking about how a lady is is loves mind wandering essentially, or, or thinking about her deepest, darkest fantasies, sex fantasies essentially. And that can, for a lot of people, if they're thinking about that sort of thing, it can bring about, I guess, a sense of shame because they don't want other people to know about it. Um, and, and on the one hand, it's kind of a, it's an interesting thing because it kind of boosts the mood <laughs> in in one sense as well. But um, this is just my mind trying to piece it all together. I found it all fascinating, Mache, so yeah, <laughs> bear, bear with me here. Um but i guess the the question i did have for you in in sort of wrapping up this this conversation because i know i've got to let you go to bed <laughs> my apologies mm-hmm. um but the is my wondering is that essentially just creativity in action
1: well it depends this is the the bedrock of of creativity so you in order to be creative to find a creative solution uh, for a problem or just to uh, incubate on a creative thought you do need a process to take place. And part of the process is what we call divergent thinking. So you can think about a creative process like a diamond. So it opens up and then closes. And when it opens up, this is the divergent thinking. And this is when you mind wander or generate ideas in all directions. It's just like a, a healthy brainstorming session where I recommend to people I consult on, on brainstorming how there should not be a boss in the room that tells this is a good idea, this is a bad idea, this is a stupid idea, this is an excellent idea. Everything goes at this stage. And and the same goes for your brain when you're in in a Search for creative thought. Uh, everything goes. There's no stupid stuff. And then there's the other direction of this diamond, which is the convergent thinking. And now it's time to evaluate all these all these ideas that you've uh, that your mind proposed to you, so to speak, uh, initially, and see which one is the best one out of the, the those divergent ideas so at some point we do need to become practical but just before that we need to wander away and be expansive in our thinking so uh, definitely mind wandering can be the it is the major the, the the main tool for creativity but it's also the main tool for the thoughts that that can torment us and can uh, cause ruminations so it's uh it's a highly potent um Process we have instilled in us, and we need to um, learn and hone in, uh, in on 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 the way we utilize it, the way we we exploit our mind wandering to our benefit, and not let it handle us and kind of manage our happiness.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh, people can get the book wherever books are sold. Mind wondering how it can improve your mood and boost your creativity. I'll make sure everyone knows where to get a copy of this book. I cannot recommended enough. It is the first book of its kind. Trust me when I say that. I think a lot of people are going to love reading this book, Mache. So thank you so much for writing it. Is there anything that you felt like that you didn't write about or that you've missed at all in terms of mind-wandering? Did you lead off uh, thinking that you're going to write a, a, a part two book
1: yeah. <laughs> I love, yeah, all the heroes are still alive at the end so it's uh, we'll have a sick room
0: <laughs> hey I can't wait <laughs>
1: it's going to be very
0: exciting it is a first relatively first. shorter book to be honest I think it's yeah. only like 170, 180 something pages long from memory actually
1: just uh, came out today as audio book as well i know many of my friends start reading and i like to listen to things while they work out so today is the birth of the audio version
0: very exciting well everyone knows where to get books these days and same with audio books audible you name it but where where can they connect with you mache where do you want people to connect with you
1: Well, I think on the cover of the book, it gives my, you know, all the social media stuff. But I think if you type my name or Shebar on Google, I think I'm one of the, I will appear at some point.
0: It's not hard to find people. I'll tell you a quick story. I actually walked into my local Dimmick store and happened to come across this book. And I took a photo of it and I'm like, huh, this is a fascinating thing. So I decided to buy myself a copy of it, reach out to you, And then lo and behold, we're talking today, so I've got a a second copy of your book that I'll give away for for a lucky person later on. Uh, But Michelle, my final question for you, this is my all time favorite question I ask everyone at the end. It is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they've got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life?
1: Uh, you know, there was a, a very good uh, sci-fi movie with uh, Robin Williams that they were editing, uh, there's a memory chip, and his role was after somebody's uh, passed away, (laughs) that to kind of, to edit a a little film out of the memory of the internet, so you would watch people's entire life. Uh, I love this idea. I think it will be, uh, yeah, I don't know, you're asking uh, deep questions that uh, I haven't uh, thought about thoroughly myself. yeah, I don't know. It almost sounds like I'll need to stage the, the memories or kind of uh, direct their memories. I want it to be more, you know, like uh, maybe a white screen and let them each project and wonder about the memories they have of me or whatever, you know.
0: Yeah. Oh, I like that. <laughs> that is really good. I mean, if your family knows you, then even better, let them do the work. Why Why allow exactly. them? To- yeah, why, yeah, why you do it for them? <laughs> exactly. So cool. Okay, well, Mache, thank you so much for your time, for writing this book once again, and for everything that you're doing and putting out there in the world. I can't wait for the second book to come out too. Maybe we'll have a second conversation in the future. But thank you so much for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank
1: you, Jay. Enjoy speaking with you.
0: I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you And don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then.